I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, welcome back to Deep Dish Radio. I'm Tim Powers, and this is my show. Thanks very much for sticking with me. Uh, my guest today is Slim Jim Phantom, drummer for... Uh, arguably one of the best bands to come out of the 1980s, The Stray Cats, which almost single-handedly uh, brought Rockabilly back. And uh, really, really, some, some great music came out of them. And if you're listening to this show, you darn well ought to know about uh, who The Stray Cats are. Uh, Jim has put out his, uh, his autobiography called My Life is a Rockabilly Rebel, A Stray Cat Strut by Slim Jim Phantom. Get it wherever you get your books uh, in it. Jim tells the story about how he fell in love with the drums, how he, uh, well, what it was like being one of the Stray Cats, and uh, what a long, strange trip it's been, a marriage to Britt Eklund, uh, production by, uh, by Dave Edmonds, friendship with one of the Beatles. Uh, Jim's had an incredibly amazing and charmed life, and I gotta tell you, easily one of the most fun interviews I've ever done. So sit back, strap in, and uh, and take part in the wild ride that is Slim Jim Phantom, which is coming up right after this. If you like the show, I encourage you to help me out and go to iTunes and leave me a five-star review right now. Um, that's the best way for people to find out about this show. Just boost the ratings and, and let people know that you like what you hear. Leave a review, leave a leave leave a comment, which certainly wouldn't wouldn't hurt. And then take the show and tweet it out to your friends. Post it on your Facebook page. Let everybody know what uh, what you're hearing here on Deep Dish Radio, so that I can attract more and more fun guests, and I can spend more time doing this. Uh, it's a pleasure doing this for you and uh, our audience has grown significantly over the last few weeks thank you very much and uh, really appreciate that this is so much fun for me i hope it's fun for you too so that being said ladies and gentlemen deep dish radio proud to present slim chip so i've had a very you know you know, charmed life, and I'm, you know, it's the middle of the day, I'm watching the Yankee game, and I'm, you know, I can dig it. Good, you, um, know? you are my second guest to open for the Stones, Larry Tamblin from the Standells, opened for the Stones in 66, and you opened <laughs> 20 years later, which is awesome. <laughs> They're even older than me, right? Yeah. The Standells, Dirty Water. Yeah, Dirty Water. Um, they were also on the Munsters. Yeah, that's right. Hope you talked about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, their drummer was one of the Mouseketeers. Really, Dickie Dodd. Ah, see, I always felt bad about that. Those guys, they're like on a TV show, and then they had to play the Beatles songs. I'm like, 
Yeah, <laughs> they, you know? they they cried all the way to you the, know, the bank. Beatles got paid again. It was you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it did. I want to hold your hand, or you know, one one of the like big hits of the day. They didn't do their own song. Yeah, no kidding. But uh, I don't know. They had a they had an interesting career. I'll send you. Uh, I'll send your your uh, publicist a link to the episode if you want to check it out. It's really oh, it's yeah. really I mean, cool. I, I, He's a good egg. I love those guys. I've I've got their uh, and an album came out uh, like a few years ago, like on the. Um, on the Nuggets series, I think uh, Garage Rock. I have a whole Standells album. The uh, is that the um, the L.A. Nuggets set, the where the action is set. Yeah, I think yeah, and I think they did something to do with the Standells as well. Yeah, I think they were on some, and I have an LP, a vinyl one of all uh, like a full, um, an album of theirs. Oh so. yeah, it's good stuff. It's it's really good stuff. They played at um, they when the when the Nuggets box came out. Uh, they did a concert mm. at Amoeba. It was them and the uh, Peanut Butter Conspiracy and Jackie DeShannon and uh, and P.F. Sloan, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Crazy you know, Jackie DeShannon is still around. She's, um, uh, she's a correspondent because I'm going to do this weekend. I'm going to do Breakfast with the Beatles. You're doing Chris Carter's show. About, yeah. Cool, yeah. Because I have a chapter about George Harrison who was like a – I don't want to say covert, but like a like friend of mine, like not on the radar kind of thing, you know. Right. Um, and I never really talk about these things until uh, till I did the book because I'm at one point I said, why am I just giving everything away all the time? They steal the music. They say, my stories <laughs> I'm going to keep for myself until I can at least you know get a good gig out of it, you know, something um, to do it myself, not to just tell stories all the time. Um, so um, so I called Chris just out of the blue, I'm trying to think out of the box a little bit, right. because the publishers they have the you know the set things that they call and they do, and that's their world. But I said, how can I go out of the box? I just cold called Chris Carter. And he said, "What a great idea!" Because there's a whole chapter about George, and I, you know, we can make that into an hour playing Beatles songs and talking about, you know. Um, so Jackie DeShannon is is a correspondent on the show, right? Yep, I'm you know, in, I'm in Eagle Rock, man. I'm I'm a I'm a listener to, to Carter's show too. In fact, I'm probably oh, going to see could... you Wednesday night at uh, at Book Soup. Oh, because the number came up from Rhode Island. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's my uh, that's my studio line. But I'm up in Pasadena, the Eagle Rock, man. Okay, I I was just there um, uh, yesterday. As a funny, you know, a bit more of my wacky life, a good buddy of mine was in the Power Rangers, and they had the convention, the Comic Con. Oh, you were up at the, the Ranger Con. That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> Steve Cardenas is a good buddy of mine, Rocky the Red Ranger, for 20 years, you know. And he bugs me to go to his things. He comes to mine. I finally went yesterday. Cool. There were like 2,000 people. No one cared, cared about me. And then there was a girl who spent the show who I wound up knowing. We sat together. It was, it was just a nice day, but I was in Pasadena. Did you get recognized? No. Nobody cared there. Well, that's too bad. Well, they got recognized when Steve Cardenas came and walked me through the lobby. (laughs) 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 You know, the shoe was on the other foot. (laughs) That's hilarious. Well, listen, man, one of the things that I picked up, uh, especially out of the first third of the book, is people say that luck is when uh, when opportunity meets uh, preparation. Right. Yes. And yep. that's kind of what I got from the early days of the of the Stray Cats. You guys were were just a, a Long Island band, and you're like, yeah, we could be bigger than this. And you kind of knew, and and took off to England, and everything kind of kind of took off. Can you can you kind of go through that story a little bit? Well, um, it, this is 1979, 1980. I think um, uh, we were 
you know, we found rockabilly at a certain age. We were all musician guys from the same school, really, same neighborhood. Brian's a couple of years older, but we were all in school together, Little League, and we've known each other since, I don't know, seven years old. Right. Really that long. And um, uh, everyone was musicians, and um, we kind of knew each other. Lee and I played together a lot, and uh, Brian we knew, again. Um, and we all kind of found rockabilly around the same time. Everyone was, we were in, into the blues and into glam rock and into a bunch of things. Punk rock had just come, and we, you know, somehow got through the filter of it all, rockabilly, and, and everyone was immediately turned on by it, Lee, Brian, and me. And we started doing what became the Stray Cats. It's almost like a fun thing, you know? And then it, um, because we're three guys that like to get dressed up, and we had a double <laughs> bass, and, you know, right. you know, expanding the frontiers a little bit, you know, getting minimalist and moving the drums up to the front of the stage, which no one had ever done. There's been small drum kits. There might even be a couple of like ancient ones where someone stood up. But one thing I positively know is that no one ever put the drums in the front of the stage before. Right. Even you know big band guys, my idols, Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, they were still a little bit behind the band. You know, <laughs> um, uh, there was a second line. That's what it comes from. You know, second line musicians are the drummer. But um, so we were playing around and we were trying to get ahead. We would go and play. Uh, New York City, once a month, CBGB's, Max's, where I was trying to get a record deal, hoping someone was in the audience kind of thing, you know, to get, um, but then during the week, we played bars on Long Island that the big music venues wouldn't have us, because it was too weird. You think about 1979, and we're like in pink suits and high, high hair, and you know, just didn't want to know about anything else. Right, people are just Long Island, coming off you know, disco like and... Stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even New York City or it wasn't, you know, anywhere groovy at all. We were on, and we stuck to our guns. We dressed that way 24-7, went around together, and it was almost like having to fight for the right to, to look a certain way, you know? But at night, we would play these little bars, and uh, we couldn't get booked at the big rock clubs. Like I said, they were like still, you know, it was very much Southern rock and heavy metal, you know, whatever was around 1979. So, um, right. And... So we would booked our own gigs at these little what we would call old man bars, corner bars, and you know, pubs in England. <laughs> yeah. You call them, but and that weren't even rock places. They didn't even have stages. We would just find them. You know, there's a place up there on Sunrise Highway. Let's go to that place and see. And usually the bartender was the owner. You know, it was a dark place in the daytime. You right. know, that kind of. And we would just say, "We'll play here Tuesday nights, and we'll bring our kids, and we'll, you know." All right, you guys just, you know, have some people here. We took the door, they took the bar, and we found five of these places scattered about Long Island in our area. There was one in Amityville, there was one in Belmore, there was one in Massapequa, uh, there was one in Merrick. You know, so five days a week, we played, and we played four sets a night. And we had a little gathering of people that weren't rockabillies, they were just like neighborhood people who kind of heard about us and would come around. So they'd have 100 people just turn up and be crazy for us. They protected us, and they, you know, we were the eccentric kind of guys and they looked out for us but so but we wanted to do something bigger something a little bit more international we kind of knew it was good and that being on long island wasn't the way to go forward so we kind of just left sold everything that we had a couple of you know pa like a little pa and some drums and an extra guitar kind of thing and just went to England because we heard about punk rock and we got some magazines where that there was cool people there kind of thing. Right. Even in New York City, it was a very tiny alternative scene. You know, there was Max's and CBGB's, but I think 79, early 80, there was kind of nowheresville everywhere. There was no, you know, scene for anything particularly. Um, so we heard England was cool. 
Right. I don't know if we even thought about it more than five minutes. Okay. <laughs> and we went. We, the three of us moved to England. We had, you know, all, you know, our clothes in a suitcase we all used to share, like who gets the bowling shirt that day, who got the pink pants, and who got the, you know, just grab whatever you could. And we were pretty much homeless, you know. We slept in, you know, like Sid and Nancy, the squats like that. There right. was a few around. We found one, you know. Um, we... Um, we we went into Soho, tried to knock on doors, and we wound up staying at X-rated theaters because for a buck you could stay there 24 hours. And we were asleep. We were kids. We were sleeping in a you know, like any normal kid would be watching the movie. You know, right. we were, you know, we had nowhere to go, <laughs> literally. So we knocked on enough doors, went to some parties, and tried to find out where you know groovy places were. And we knocked on doors and finally got a couple of gigs. This is maybe three, four months into it, being homeless. Um, uh, and we got a couple of opening act slots. Right. Pub, playing at a pub, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I, but we had been around on the party scene trying to get in, telling everyone that we met uh, about this band. Right. We're the greatest band in the world, but no one's ever heard us, and we have nowhere to live. And you know, we're, uh, So when we finally got these opening act slots, the word was out a little bit. Okay, let's just go see these guys, and they're not going to bother us anymore, and we can say we saw them. And then we played. And, okay, kids, you got 20 minutes. And there was Lemmy in the audience and Steve Jones and Chrissy Hine and Joe Strummer. Ooh. And, like, there was 10 people, but they were, like, seven cool people that we had met at parties who, right. like, we pestered everyone so much that they came to see us kind of thing, you know? And then we only had to play. And this is where the, you know, the preparation comes in. We've been playing four sets a night, five nights a week for a year in New York. Right. So when someone says, 20 minutes, kid, go... We wanted that opportunity. And you had you know, a, we the were, tightest 20 we in all of London, huh? Yeah. And so London was small. You know, it's a big place, but there was a music press, and it was a small scene. So it took just you know one guy hearing about it to tell some guy at the music paper who said, hey, there's these three kids, and they're homeless from New York, and they're playing you know, tomorrow. And it, got, and it spread very quickly um, because of the audience. We had like five rock stars out of ten people that were in the audience <laughs> kind of thing, you know? Um, and... Uh, and again, it's still, it's still people I speak to to this day. We just saw Steve, you know, Lemmy was, you know, tough one. I just saw Chrissy Hine where, like, Strummer was a tough one. But everyone's still friendly. It's funny. Right, of a certain right. age and a certain scene, it's, um, everyone stays in touch. Um, so when we had that opportunity, we really went for it. And um, the time was right. In England, too, there was, there, there was a kind of in-between scene. Like punk rock had just, you know, was like over, new wave was kind of over, and there was nothing in the void kind of. And we stepped up with a the very strong image as well. It was like rockabilly, but it was punk rock, and it was, we didn't really know. We just thought what was cool, you know, we thought anyone with any kind of haircut and any kind of clothing was cool against right. the squares kind of thing, you know. <laughs> so that kind of, the, the innocence of it, and at this time we're still 19 years old. Um, I, that kind of came across. Right. And then when they saw, you know, the guy standing on the drum, wow, look at that giant band. And then they hear Brian play, and he's, he's virtuoso. He's a special musician, you know. Um, yeah, he's amazing. Uh, it was just game over, you know. And then it really took meeting Dave Edmonds, who was the guy who could get it onto the tape, which we didn't really know how to do. But he was another one of the people in the audience. Yeah, your record contract is is interesting because um, y- you know it, it was it was everything but the U.S. and you would think that a place that would really embrace its own music, its own roots music, 
um, you know, the, the rockabilly, you know, uh, Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran kind yeah. of sound, you know, we'd be hungry for that, especially coming off the heels of disco. Turns out we were, but in 1980, did, people didn't realize that. And your record deal didn't include the U.S. No, it was a ex- exclusive, you know, like, it, you know, purposely said the U.S. company wasn't interested. Like, it was a huge company, you right. know, and that's the past, the worldwide, you know. And the thing was his contract, we had a bunch of people after us. Richard Branson, who was fantastic, thought we were smashing good fun, you know, right. came to right. see us. I should have gone with him. In hindsight, we could have got a, maybe upgrades on the airline. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, everyone wanted us because it was so kind of in the moment, you know, right. and the, and the Rolling Stones came to see us, and uh, you know it was that world that was happening, and like small clubs, all these famous people to see us, who just. But at the same time, it was groovy, and I loved meeting everyone and part. But we had no money; we were still kind of homeless, right? And you know, so when someone took you to lunch to court you for a record, we tried to drag it out for a month to get to get lunches every day, kind of <laughs> thing. You know, oh, we're meeting with who knows Warner Brothers. Oh, oh, okay, you know that, you know. Hopefully to take us to you know, to lunch, you know. So, um, uh, so um, when the people who came up with the money first is who we went with, kind of thing, and they were a good company. Arista, you know, they were, yeah. they were fine, but they also had a U.S. division. The pretty famous people ran it, who chose not to have us on their label. Um, so we went about it the opposite way. We went everywhere that they would take us. We went to France. Straight, we had like five straight number ones in France. Right. Um, Germany, Holland, all over Europe, every country in Europe, and it was a huge scene. Um, uh, Japan, Australia, back to England, back to Europe. So by the time we got around to coming to the States, this is like two, three years later. We had been like having big hit records around the world, but we're American guy. We wanted to come back and play, play in the States, and, and uh, we got someone bought the, uh, the license, I think, from Arista, okay, and and they put it out here. A, a and small we, label again. Uh, it was EMI. Oh, okay. And they um, mm-hmm. uh, because Arista, I think, had the first right of refusal, and they passed kind of thing. And right. even though we had his records, they again make room on the soapbox for me because this is what I've been saying for thirty years. It's American music, you know. And Keith Richards, say, who came to see us play and became a you know a friendly and all. That, all he said to us, the first thing he says, all we did, man, was sell your music back to you. <laughs> that's He's what exactly it was, right. you know. That yeah. Of well, course they, you know, the American people at the time and where we were maybe some you know, uh, like a small scene. Nobody knew Johnny Burnett or Carl Perkins or it, it it really was American music that had been embraced. Cuz rockabilly itself was a very short-lived thing in the states, you know. Elvis of course was Elvis and Buddy Holly got through a little bit Jerry Lee went country. But uh, as a movement, it wasn't nearly as big as you know the British Invasion or disco or New Wave. It really wasn't that big of a movement, right. you know. Um, and we loved it so much, and we went to the places where they where it came from, Norfolk, Virginia, and they didn't know who Gene Vincent was. Wow. In Texas, they didn't know who Buddy Holly was. You know, the, you know the movie came out so a little bit Buddy Holly, but um, you know, in general, um, and I still don't know. I don't even really know if it's important that 99% of the fans of the Stray Cats didn't know what it was. They just knew it was a band they liked and that was you know, popular and it had a look. And you know, so, But it linked up perfectly with MTV. That's where I was going to go, actually. Very, Your image was just a, like custom-made built for MTV. Yeah, which is, I think MTV is a fantastic pop cultural 
phenomenon amongst the greatest things ever, I think. Really changed the world. Changed um, your world. And, <laughs> yeah, well, I kind of think it changed everything, to be honest. It, yeah. it really changed the whole game, I think. Um, um, and believe it or not, when MTV started... They needed content. Oh yeah, I remember. They I was have uh, enough stuff. I am the right age for for the yeah. MTV generation. I was so thirteen in nineteen eighty two. Yeah, that we had already made in England. Julian Temple, who did the you know the Sex Pistols film, he's like a big uh, you know right. Um, he's really become like a successful mainstream guy. Um, so he had done two videos for us because in Europe you would show them on Saturday afternoon kind of shows and you know it, it was a um, uh, there wasn't a music channel per se but you used video a little bit so anyway we had two in the can and when MTV started they just needed stuff to play right and we were on the road this would have been the summertime 1982 and um, radio was still kind of resistant because it was still again it was Look at the charts in 1982. Yeah, no um, kidding. Um, and like now, I I like everything, but exactly at the time we were fighting a little bit, and so MTV was playing things that were a little bit off the beaten path because they needed stuff. So sometimes you clip would get played ten times a day because they needed they didn't have another one kind of thing, you know. Right. So at that point, MTV started to dictate to radio. Like radio couldn't ignore it anymore. So rather than uh, you know. Uh, then MTV looking, well, it's on 100 stations, let's start playing it. It was the radio looking, wow, this thing that it played 100 times a day on MTV, we better start playing this on our station. Right. And that's when I think the world changed for a lot of us who were alternative, I suppose, you know. Um, and, and it was just a tailor-made image, I think, because we, 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 we really combined it, like a few things. And, um, and now if you look back to like that exact moment in time, 83, 84, there's... It really made a dent, you know. The uh, the mannequins at Macy's had pompadours, and they looked like bowling shirts on the, you know, we're kinda, <laughs> you know, we're in the poster in the back of John Waters and Pretty in Pink. We were the poster on the wall, kind of thing, you right. know, like uh, sixteen candles rather. Um, but you know, it it kind of for a brief moment there became the mainstream. And they just they and, they drank you right in, man. You were you, you could pop into the studio whenever you wanted. Um, you know, it, it kind of you guys kind of yeah. ran MTV for a while. Everyone was friends, and that's something I, I I'm pretty sure I talked about. We were friends with everyone. Martha Quinn was our friend, and Nina Black with JJ Johnson, especially Mark Goodman, Alan Hunter. We were friends, and I think they were friends with other bands too, not just us, but everyone would hang out. Right, like you'd go to New York. Let's go to MTV, okay, and we just go there. And it was, again, they were happy to have people. You know, it was like a VJ and a potted plant behind them trying to find a video to, to you know, play. <laughs> no and everyone was really cool. I, I, it's really positive memories of that. Um, uh, so, and we were just on the road the whole time, and, uh, and it clicked a little bit, you know. And uh, the, what we were really excited about was the guys like Carl Perkins, Paul Burleson from Johnny Burnett, Jerry Lee. These people came out and... Wanda Jackson, Sonny Burgess, they said, thank you, boys, for bringing this music back, because <laughs> it really re-energized the, you know, the rockabilly world. You know, that's, I mean, if you want to look at it, you know, when I was younger, I used to feel a little bit embarrassed by it all, but now I'm just calling it like I see it. All these compilations in rockabilly world came after the Stray Cats. I mean, they might have existed a few of them, uh, but in general, I think the whole world and and those old original artists would be the first guys to tell you that their lives got kind of 
plugged in again. It's the truth. The kids found rockabilly, you know. It's the truth, Jim. I'll tell you, I grew up in St. Louis, right? And right. and it took a while for the cats to get, you know, popular in St. Louis. But yeah. we, I loved Chuck Berry forever. Totally. And, yep. uh, you know, once you guys started hitting the charts, he started playing the clubs again. You know, and he started coming around, and he started having uh, regular gigs in St. Louis, and it was it wow. was fun to see him playing, um, just as kind of a reaction to to the fact that people were paying attention to what came before the Beatles, thanks to you guys. Yeah, and it's again, no one bothered to ask the Beatles. I think, like, if you would ask John Lennon what he thought about Gene Vincent, he would have been happy to tell you. Oh, I just loved don't think Gene anyone Vincent. asked them. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't. You know, when we met the, you know, the Rolling Stones and George, of course, they knew all this stuff, you know, and that's why they liked the Stray Cats. They couldn't, you know, we were like the real thing to a bunch of those older guys, especially the English guys, you know, they, um, they, they like really saw it. They got it. And, and I think Um, part that, because that's your foundation, I think it, it, you know, from the outside of the Stray Cats, I can say this. That's why the music holds up today more so than other things that are kind of, you know, the novelty hits that came out of that same era, which were, sure. were not the same kind of music. But, uh, you know, when people think about the early 80s, there's there's uh, there's the music and then there's the the novelty songs that kind of came out at the same time. People go, oh, oh, oh I remember the 80s. And but but you right. guys had the the chops and your foundation was. The, you know the granddaddies of rock and roll, and uh, you know it, it was it was great to see yeah. it come back. Yeah, and 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 like again, and I this is what I tried to revisit in in you know the overall um, view of my book. With I started this whole thing because I and like to think we loved rockabilly music and loved playing and loved the image and loved this thing and you know that we've had a life from it and made a little bit of dent and made it now it's up to some other band to carry the torch i mean we've had our hit records and now you have a life and all that you know but we kind of gave it the chance to continue because if the straight cats hadn't hit hadn't had a hit record, like we used to call you the same age am hits yeah you know sure um you know the rolling stones had them the Beatles, they had fm hit that crossed over to am now mm-hmm. i don't think that there's one that's in common from the charts but well, yeah, the, the industry is so you know, weird. Um, in the 80s, maybe early 90s, there was like a, you could have an AM hit, right? And the Stray Cats had a few of them. And that's the only way to, that you can really be, like a better word, legendary kind of thing. You know, you had to have a hit song. Yep. And um, I, don't, I think if the Stray Cats hadn't had hit songs, like everyone knows Rock This Town. You can go to the Amazon jungle and sing Rock This Town. They're going to know it. You know, so it's that <laughs> kind of true. thing. Those, and we have a few of those. You know, the Beatles have the most, the Stones have the second most, Elvis has, the, you know, like you have to have a few of those right. to really, you know, write a book, you know, to have a book written about you. Um, I don't know if Rockabilly would have continued. It would have been like a, you know, a dead language. Yeah. Um, that's and that's what I can really take pride in, and that this is, you know, now it's up to the rest of them. And I think now there's a little bit of a movement, and there's uh, Hot Rod and Tattoo and car- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style our culture so it's going to continue to a certain extent you know but i don't know if it would have you know that's a that's a tough call and with you guys being as visible and and as as well produced and as and like i said the the music holds up um it's it's hard to say what would have happened if it had been three other guys who didn't have the chops that you did who just had you know guitars and haircuts i don't think it would have caught on um, you know, like you guys are used to, you had your Hamburg days, you know, where you played five sets a day for, you know, you put in your 10,000 hours. And, uh, and I think a lot of that is why it, it holds up. And, you know, you were, you were mentioning AM hits. Rock This Town sounds really good on an AM radio. It was like, it's, it's well produced. It's a great record. But if you compress it and play it on AM radio, it sounds like it belongs on AM radio too. And it's, it's like one of the last hits that really sounds like that. I believe I put it in the book uh, strongly enough um, how how important Edmonds was, Dave Edmonds, who was kind of a bit in the story, not to compare yourself to one that big, but he was a little bit like Sam Phillips, who was waiting for Elvis Presley to come along, kind of thing. Dave Edmonds <laughs> yeah. really knew and loved this music and knew how it, he wanted it to sound. I think if we had gotten the wrong producer, we didn't really know, like we were kids. I think Brian knew how he wanted his guitar to sound. He was an intuitive guy and all that, but like about miking a drum or, you know, as long as you could hear the drum, that's what I knew. Like you, right. like you put a mic on the singing, that's all that you, you know, I, nobody really knew, right. to be honest with you. So, um, uh, so Edmonds was really the, uh, you know, he knew and he came to see us and said, let me do it before someone else does it incorrectly, you know? Um, <laughs> And we went in, and then the label agreed to, you know, because everyone wanted to produce it. It was like a very much en vogue, in the moment thing, the Stray Cats. In, in London, 1980, they wanted to get the record out before Christmas, you know, so we had to do it quick, you know. Right. And um, I didn't know any of this, of course. Now you look back and see how the business is. Um, uh, they wanted to really seize the moment, and Edmonds was there he wanted to do it and the label agreed to him so we you know we had to get and do it it had to be you know we had kind of maxed out the little bit of fame that you're going to get from playing in the pubs and you know having cool people come to the show um we had to actually because this was only in london you know there was the rest of the country and then the rest of the world but everything we were doing was very london centric so um, so Dave knew, it, and we went in the studio like two days later and cut Run- uh, Runaway Boys, so and Rock wow. Town and Straight Cat all all in the same week. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, we knew that set inside out, so we basically did the live set in the studio. 
and he was songs. he was definitely the right man for the job. Now, do you remember doing uh, Fridays? Yeah, I remember it very well. Tell me, Again, tell me about that. When I did the Fridays, okay. Do the people know what Fridays was like? A Fridays like was a like a Saturday show. was ABC Saturday Night Live, and it it the the cast included Larry David, and Michael Richards, yeah, and uh, yeah. and it was kind of a it, it had kind of a underground kind of alternative to yeah. uh, Saturday Night Live kind of feel. I was watching right. the night you guys came on. Okay, now the guy who was the booker for the show was on a holiday or a vacation in London, right. And saw the band play. He was, you know, again, it was a little bit of uh, good luck, you know. Um, He, I guess we we would have had to have been good the night that he, you know, booked. The Clash had done it. um, So they had musical guests like they did on SNL. And uh, but again, it's all very record company based. You know, you have to have a song on the radio, and you have to have a label to fly you over. You have to have someone to pay the hotel bill, and then you get someone that brings the gear there. And it's all involved with the label kind of thing. There's a reason for it. Like you go to the radio station, the girl from the thing takes you to the to the newspaper, and you do the. You know, it's a bit of a system. Right. So this guy came to see um, was in London. Then on his vacation, and I guess he was in, in seeing bands, saw the Stray Cats, I have to have this, right? So went back to the States, and our record hadn't been released in America. Right. We, we found out a little bit later, it had been been played a little bit on the import show on K-Rock, Import Alley, right. the show in the 80s that would play, you know, whatever was to, you know, the band from England kind of thing. So, um, because they got it on an import. So this guy went back to the States, and went to the ABC people and told them that we were the biggest band and this and that and the other, and that if they're they're fine, okay, who do we call the label? How do we get this set up? How do we, we didn't have anybody? It was just <laughs> us, basically, three you know children somehow in the world by ourselves. Right. Um, uh, so he somehow promised the TV network that if they booked us, that the next week. Because it was the same manager, they would get, it was like Journey or some huge band. Right. Right? That they promised <laughs> to, to put an unknown band who didn't even have a record out. They have to think about this. Going on, imagine getting on Saturday Night Live with a band that didn't have a record. You'd have to or be American amazing. Band, or even American Bandstand, right? You right. have to have a record. So this guy believed in us and it was the wacky days back then. We bluffed our way, right? And we came to L.A., and through the import and the player, we didn't know any of this. We had kind of were, were like, had a following without knowing it. So they booked the show at the Roxy to try to like pay for the hotel that we was, had to stay in while we were doing Fridays. Right. Kind of thing. And that quickly turned into we did the Roxy for, I think, five days. An afternoon show and an evening show. <laughs> Maybe it was the same. Three hundred people came to every show. I don't know, but there was. A, and I had never been to L.A. before. I had been to Paris. You know, we, we had been to right. Tokyo, but I had never been to L.A. And I just never left after that first time. So we did. Fri- uh, we did Fridays and did the Roxy to pay for it. Again, we still didn't have a record contract in America, and. So Roxy was just an amazing memory. You know, I think Jack Nicholson came, you know, and yeah. like, I just remember, you know, someone took me to the rainbow and we went upstairs on the Roxy and we were living at the sunset marquee, you know, uh, doing the laundry <laughs> in the basement and Chrissy Hine was there. It was just a fantastic time, you know, right. um, walking to the sunset strip from 
um, from the Sunset Marquee. And, you know, years, and, and, and I just loved L.A., and I just never left. And then years later, I lived on Sunset Strip. I owned a nightclub, but it became very much my universe. Right. But the first time was when we did the... Um, was when we did the Roxy, and because of Fridays. So we did Fridays, and if you were there, so you remember being in your living room and on Friday nights, and the Stray Cats come on the TV, we were like children with tattoos and really looked mean, and we're probably smoking on stage, and like the whole thing, yep. believing, b- believing it 100%, because that was, that was we were really into it. Right. And again, it was another one of those things where, okay, National TV live. There's no backing track. You play live on national TV, and you pretty much your whole life depends on this show. Right. And it was like, okay, what, you mean just go and play the songs? Yes. Okay, great. And then we went to some party at uh, Michael Richards' you know, house afterwards or something, <laughs> who years <laughs> later I met, and I didn't remember any of this. You know? um, <laughs> at the time, again, it was just something you did that day. Right. You know, that's what you did that day. They told you to go here and do this, and that's what we did. And... Um, and again, I don't even rem- really remember having much guidance, you know. Uh, you know, there was uh, maybe a manager. I don't even think we had a manager at that time. We just somehow did things. You guys were just, <laughs> I'm just sorry, the three musketeers. I can't quite remember it more than that. Yeah. Um, but years later, and this is kind of cool, at the Rolling Stones show, when Bill Clinton gave the, the thing, they gave away the tickets kind of thing. Yeah. It was like an Earth Day thing. Okay, so a bunch of us had got tickets. And um, so we're going to the sea. And I went right back. I saw Charlie, uh, the, Ronnie Wood's wife, Josephine, at the time. She said, hey, the Stray Cats kid, come on back. And we just <laughs> went and, you know, had run of the whole place. And, and then we went to our seats. Uh, and I'm with, you know, the girlfriend at the time and a couple guys from the Cat Club band. And it was like, don't worry, I'll take care of everything. And it really worked, you know. Right. For, for, so we're, we're going to into our seats and someone puts their legs up and blocks, you know, when you're walking down the aisle in an arena. Right. And... Who's it? it was Larry David, and he said, "Remember me." He was trying to be cool in front of his friends, like he knew the rock and rollers, I think, you know. And and he was like, "Hey, remember Fridays?" And the, oh yeah, how you doing, buddy? You know. And he just wanted to kind of grill me in front of his friends for a few minutes, and then he let me pass, you know. But at the time, who who would have known that those guys would have done right. that kind of work, you know? And they're fantastic. And Seinfeld went to our high school, same as Stray Cats, so. Like another small twist of irony to that story. <laughs> That's really amazing. Um, yeah. You know, uh, there's there's um, there are a lot of great stories in this book, and there's a lot of really, uh, you know, I hate to use the term lucky because I don't want to diminish the amount of work no, and, and talent that you guys put into it, but. You know, L.A. is full of people who have put in a lot of work and have a lot of talent who just yeah. don't get the break. And, yeah. you know, you guys were at the right place, the right time, the right look. Sure. Everything just kind of came together for you. And and I got to the end of the book, and I'm like, this guy's had an awesome life. Usually at the yeah. end of a biography, I'll ask the guy who wrote it, you know, if you could go back and tell 19-year-old Jim Phantom some advice to carry him through his adult life to make it easier, what would you tell him? And I'm like, this guy probably doesn't have anything to say because he just he lucked his way through no, you know, invest your money and uh, you know buy like apple stock for <laughs> the money from the us festival into apple stock that's what i would tell somebody the us festival don't take the money from the us festival just tell the guy could we just have it in stock instead mister that's what i would tell someone besides that end of it all which no kids really know right um uh, uh you know, it's been awesome, and it's just because playing rockabilly music and being genuine about it. And I do think that if we 
started right now, if, if we were 19 years old, the Stray Cats would make it again. Oh, yeah. I have no doubt. I have no doubt in that. Because it was really in, in the same way that Elvis would make it and the Sex Pistols would make it and the Clash would make it and Led Zeppelin would make it. I think there are certain groups within a genre that are, that are special, that it transcends the actual time yeah. that, you know, that you're in. Like, it's good in the 50s, it's good in the 80s, it's good right now. You know, uh, that's my own well, feeling yeah. about the band. Uh, well, the, the, I think the reason that Rockabilly endures is because there's something just spiritually transcendent about the rock and roll that just grabs you by the sternum and and shakes you and just and and you know you, everybody's got those records that gives them makes the hair on their arms stand up you know yes, yes. and whether it's 20 flight rock or it's uh sweet little 16 or it's sexy and 17 you know whatever, every time you know there it is and that's i think i think that's what was really missing when you guys burst on the scene you know and i think what Maybe not as as much in the states as as it should be because sometimes you ignore like like isn't the weather great today in L.A. Sometimes you miss it because you're right there kind of thing. But yeah. I know around the world, rockabilly represents the best part of America that the rest of the world love. Say say whatever they want. They can say you know American culture is loved all over the world. They love it. In every yep. co- country in the world, of course, a few bad guys, whatever. But like the representation of America, they love Cadillac, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, uh, jukeboxes, Harley Davidson, Corvette, Playmates. You know, uh, right. they love it. Sideburns and, and hamburgers, rockabilly, right? <laughs> rock and roll, rockabilly represents all of the great things about America. And that's what the rest of the world wants America to be great. Really, like you go to anywhere, Australia, Brazil, Finland, Tokyo, the people love this, you know? If you drive a Cadillac in any major city on planet Earth, people will say, wow, that's so cool. Right. And that's what it is, you know? People are rooting for America. Cool is cool, man. You know? And that's American cool. And that's the... after all these years of looking back at it, I really think that it's 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 a great positive representation of America. See, and that's that's what you'll take away from the book when you when you check it out is is really there's there's no more American 20th century American art form than rock and roll, and and yeah. Jim's kind of lived it. Jazz and, and the blues, and you know, yeah. And it all comes from that same same core, and cool is cool. Yeah. But the man lived a rock and roll lifestyle. He dated stars. He he, you know, opened for the Stones. He hangs out. He's friends with Beatles, and all that stuff is is in this book, man. Um, what do you want people to walk away from the book thinking about about Slim Jim Phantom? Well, you know, I, you know, he was a pretty cool guy. Let's go to his gig and you know make a. You know, I'm trying to stay out of the club. <laughs> You know, let's book him on a nice festival. He can go on at five o'clock in the afternoon. And, you know, uh, you know, I, I really, you know, uh, wrote it just to have the story told a little bit. You know, uh, and uh, to really make the connection. You know, uh, between all these kind kind of people, really to make connections. That's the whole thing. Like, no one's going to really th- know with without delving more than an inch into it, that Lemmy, his favorite guy was Buddy Holly. You know, the Sex Pistols come from Jerry Lee. Lewis. You know that everyone's connected. There's not a separation of this is. You know, 
you know, the English music, and this is punk rock, and this is, you know, the 60s, and this is, it's really kind of more connected than that. And I've kind of been through rockabilly music and through being, you know, me, we kind of stride a bunch of different fences. Yeah. Like, I was just in England over the summertime, and and I played the 80s Rewind Fest with Adam Ant and ABC, and it was awesome, you know? We had fun. I leave the door open. Everyone says hello. And then I did the punk rock Rebellion Festival with the Exploited and Anti-Nowhere League and, you know, the Damned. And again, <laughs> we, I was welcome to go. Anyone with a mohawk who's left in the world was at this thing. It was 10,000 people. And then um, I did a rockabilly one. Right. You know, that's this music is kind of... And, and then hyper into that, the Stray Cats, straddle a bunch of fences. And that's what I kind of, you know, that's the overall message is that, you know, it's connection and everyone should, you know... A couple more questions. Along, right? Just know? just a sure. couple more and we'll wrap it up. Um, you have encountered... I'm, fine, a... I'm in today. What, man? I, I said, I'm here. I'm not going out there. Beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, so, well, no believe me, I'd love to hang out, but, you know, that's how it is. Um, you you encountered a lot of people. and there's a, there's a lot of names in this book without being name-droppy. You're just, you're just telling stories about your life, which is awesome. Who are the people that came up to you and go, I love what you do, that just blew your mind? Just absolutely blew your flipping mind. You're like, you, really? You? Um, that's a good question because I always thought it was good. I, I, I was always more like, why wouldn't someone like it? Um, <laughs> uh, again, like, you know, George, you know, in the room with the Beatles, that was, that was a big one, you know. And, like, I just went up to him, you know. And, again, it's a little bit like the hot chick of the dance. No one says anything. She's going to be by herself, you know. Yeah. I'm not saying I have that much nerve, but, like, a couple times in your life, you kind of have to – have to do something or you know you're going to regret it for for five years you know right. so we were doing this tv show and it was very much you know george was doing his thing and he came and went and, I, and lee and i were the rhythm section and i just i mean it could have come and gone where hey kid you play the drums good okay mister thanks you know um but i actually went up to him and said dude I, and i think he liked that part of it you know and kind of i knew they liked rockabilly music and um it, i always thought that rockabilly was you know like a good uh you know, good unifier with all that. I I don't really. I was never surprised that anyone liked it. Um, right. You know, to the the average guy in the street that doesn't know, like Lemmy, I suppose. You know, uh, but he was a very intuitive guy. He loved punk rock. He loved jazz. He loved the blues. He loves it. So sometimes your perception of someone isn't what you think it's going to be. Yeah. But you and me were in this business to hold. Those are the only people that you know. Those. This is who you know. It's not seeking them out it's this is who you know yeah. and um uh, you know brit was awesome you know she was like a glamorous you know movie star and she and again she had never heard of the stray cats and i and i didn't know who she was we just had a connection <laughs> um, so that was a bit, bit of a lucky one you know yeah but, those um, are great stories the story of how you guys uh, got together is is really a great story in the yeah book. um so let's let's um Let's move forward. Where uh, where do we see Slim Jim Phantom moving moving forward? You know, you're gonna you're gonna continue doing doing festivals and stuff. But I'd imagine there's you know you've got that creative streak. Um, you know, is there new stuff? Well, writing the book was hard. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, I bet. I'd like to write another one. Um, again, part of I don't want to. I don't go there naturally in my head. But the same thing bad about anybody. You can pretty much do that once as well. Yeah hate everything and this thing happened and that happened you can really just do that once and maybe you know some uh you know uh, you know talk show radio host would like you to do something like that um, you know but that's 
that's not a future way forward. And in rock and roll, and then especially as being the drummer, it's all about the next gig. You know, you're trying to keep it all going. You know, um, the thing I hope is that the you know the guys in the band we you know we hook it all up. You know, and like it's really everyone's scheduling and you know lives, but there's still a lot of interest in it. And that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to end that on a whole positive note. You know, yeah. go and play, um, earn earn what it's worth, and just be like have like a positive legacy. I think. Um, and uh, you know, like in the book, just like to have easier things. I'd like to stay home more. You know, and you're in LA. You love LA. I, I do. I, I like to hike my little dog and go to uh, you know lunch in Beverly Hills. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And you know, you know, look at the girls and you know, uh, just have a little bit of an easier time. But you know, I like traveling. I was just in England for the summertime. I you know, I said I played like a bunch of festivals and I played drums for my my other good buddy Glenn Matlock. Right. Um, as as his drummer, we did a bunch of shows. We made an album. That's going to come out next year. Wow. Um, I'd like to do an album, which, again, it's everyone's scheduling. is really the hardest thing. We do a band called The Jack Tars, which is Captain Sensible of the Damned, myself, Chris Chaney from an awesome band called The Living End, Australian kind of band that's a straight cat's influenced. Now he's in his 40s, so, and, like, it doesn't matter. But when he was, you know, 17, I was 21. And, like, right. he came to see us, and, and now they're, like, huge pop stars. Um uh, and Mike Peters from The Alarm. We um, we have a band. And that is a really interesting group of guys. Yeah. yeah. Mikey Boy, Chris Chaney, Captain Sensible, and and me. And we have a bunch of songs. It's a matter of getting everyone in. We try, we almost did it in L.A. We did Troubadour a couple of years ago. Um, or maybe last year. Um, and again, a wacky gang you know, does it. That was the core of it. Augmented by Duff McKagan, who's one of our good good buddies, and um, um, Portlandia. Oh yeah, Ed Armisen, who's your neighbor up there in Eagle Rock somewhere. Yep. Fred is from our old neighborhood. No kidding, we've, we've connected. Yeah, he's he's from Valley Stream, and he saw the Stray Cats play among those early bar gigs. So he's you know big you know he's a very successful really funny comedian did SNL for a long time and I was at Portlandia and he does a thing with us so again I would like to make a record that we've been trying to make with that little combo of guys um, but life takes over right you know, Guns N' Roses everyone who started to play and the Damned they're doing the 40th anniversary of punk big thing you know uh, uh, Cheney just had a record come out in Australia that got to number four on the charts I think. Uh, Portlandia is a huge show, but it's really just finding everyone's time. That's the record I'd like to do. Yeah. And then this record with Glenn, Glenn and me. So there'll be enough to do, I think, you know. Very, very cool. I like doing radio. Well, then let's hang no out. Let's do more podcasts, man. Yeah, no one's got a show that really does, um, uh, you know, that links rockabilly to the whole thing. Like, my thing is if you like the Beatles, you have to like Carl Perkins. If you like the Who, you have to like Eddie Cochran. And just make that connection to everything. You right. Know? Um, still trying to convince the same knuckleheads that we went to high school with, you know what I mean? That there's more to life than, you know, flare jeans and, you know, long hair. <laughs> still trying, still fighting that fight in a funny way. Maybe it's my problem, you know? Yep. Um, still trying to convince everyone, you know? Um, yeah. So, just, you know, have an easier time of it all. 
That's all. That's rock and roll, man. You're perpetually fighting the fight you fight at 17. But now, you know, yeah. we're, we're up there and we're like, oh, man, I'd rather take a nap sometimes. But Yeah, but see, now I like everybody. I love Journey. I think they're amazing, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> you know, all, like when you're a punk rocker or a rockabilly, you had to have a little bit of a thing. But now what you learn, and I think that's in there because I was so young, you learn we're all in this fantastic game together, you know what I mean? It's like we're all in it. Wow. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. There are. Well, I like a, every. I like every type of music. Every band, every drummer. I, it's everyone's kind of cool. You know, there's varying degrees of how much the you know the hair on your arm stands up. But like every you know the idea that we're all still all doing it is pretty. You know, it's pretty impressive. Yep, I've got a good friend who says that you know every record, every record, no matter how, no matter what it is, every record has something good in it. No matter even if it's like the dumbest Fabian cut, you know, there's something there's something agree. good in it. And, uh, and if every you... drummer is to me. I have a whole chapter. My little appendix of my book is all about every drummer is cool. Yeah, you know? and there's some there's um, some great uh, there's some great guys in here, and there's some guys I want to check out. Now that I've read the now that I've read the um, the list, there's I'm like okay, no, 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 no. Oh, now I got to look into this. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's all kind of a human experience. You know, live music is, and again, some of it. Nothing quite moves me like Bebop Alula. Still to this day, I pull over to the side of the road if it comes. You know, like yeah. it, certain things are a little bit different. You know, that level that it still kind of moves me. But I can go see any gig, and if it's not too loud, you know, it's the only thing that kind of gives me a you know pain in the ear. But like besides that, I like everything. You know, live music. What's the What's the last live show you attended as a as an audience member? Um, well, it was good over the summertime because with Glenn we did a few. Um, well, I mean, I just did a festival just a couple of days ago with Adamant, ABC, Annabella, who's my old friend, was on it. Um, right. Toya Wilcox, Midjour from Ultravox, Ultravox, um, and, and had a great time. And then before that, I did a show. Uh, it was The Damned, um, TSOL, Anti Nowhere League, <laughs> uh, um, uh, Transgenders, and I and. Uh, I hang around and watch the bands, you know, they're everyone's, you know. Very, very cool. And then Glenn and I were on some festival that there was a bunch of young people. There was a band called the Rotten Hill Gang. And there was a band called the Pins, who were all girls, who were fantastic. Like the Go-Go's or the Bangles, but like with heavy chops. Really? Pins. Yeah. They were awesome. Like hot chicks in short skirts and like the girls playing like John Bonham. It was really good. Um, so that was just a few weeks ago, you know, and again, I hope I remember it. And, you know, months from now when someone asks me again, but <laughs> I always go back to, you know, the Sun Session, second Gene Vincent album, you know, after school session, Chuck Berry and, yep. you know, you know, Dixie Fried. And that's, that's, you know, that's it. That's the, that's where it all starts. The book is called A Stray Cat Strut, My Life as a Rockabilly Rebel. It's on uh, Thomas Dunn Books by St. Martin's Press. It is wherever you get your books. My guest has been Slim Jim Phantom, drummer extraordinaire, 80s icon, and all-around swell guy, and now my new friend. So um, <laughs> Yeah, well, um, book soup. We're, we're doing book soup on Wednesday. Yep, I'll be there. O'clock. Oh, great! So we can just just you know introduce yourself, and I you know I'd love to come on the show. And I'm I'm when I'm around in L.A., yeah. which I try to be more. I like going out. I like hanging out with everybody, and we you know goof off, and we. You know. All right, brother. It's always something to do.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.